0: Hello, and welcome to The Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of The Houston Experiment Concert Series, which is a series of music concerts held in New York City and streamed online for all to see. This podcast is for anyone who either loves music, works in the industry, or is curious in learning about music genres they may not be familiar with. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and sign up as a sponsor. If you love the show, please take a moment and rate or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each rating and review will help people find the show, which will be greatly appreciated. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Houston Experiment. For today's podcast, I am very pleased and excited to have as a guest, composer Kevin Scott, and the topic we will be discussing today coincides with Juneteenth, and that is the struggle that African American composers face in trying to become established composers. There's a lot to talk about, and this will be a two-part episode. And It's very eye-opening as to the stuff that me and Kevin talk about, so let's get right to it, and I hope you all enjoy. I am here with Kevin Scott. He is a very talented composer and African-American composer, and I have known Kevin for Actually, I don't even know how long I've known Kevin Ford. It's been that long. But um, he is here. And, Kevin, how are you doing? I am fine,
1: Greg. Thank you very much for having me on the Houston Experiment. And I'm happy to be here. And I'm ready to talk about everything you're about to present to me. And uh, as I said, let's go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I think I met you, like, Year like I think ten years ago on the Black Composers Forum on Facebook, I believe.
1: Yes, That's about right. Maybe, maybe a little longer than that, but you're right. Around at least ten years ago.
0: Yeah, <laughs> because I, because that just hit me because I was just thinking. I'm like, wait, how long have I known you for? It's been forever. So again, it's great to talk to you as always. So um, so the topic today that I wanted to talk to you about, and this has been talked a lot on the form and just in general is just about African-American composers and how we have evolved and where we need to go from here. Uh, so I would definitely like to get your take on this whole topic, which is finally getting discussed, but we still a lot more needs to be discussed about that. Um, before we begin, I just wanna—I never actually asked you about your background, how you got started, um, you know, just just your compositional history.
1: Well, that's a that's a good place to start. Um, where to begin is is, is like a story unto itself. I uh, started composing during my teens. Now, I had not anticipated on being a composer. I my original. Uh, train of thought was to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer of fictional novels and the like, you know, adventure novels, comedies and a few other things. And that's what I was doing in grade school and in all of junior high school for that matter. I even wrote a play or two. And I really wanted to concentrate more on the theater and also literary uh, venues. But I was in ninth grade and I was in the chorus and um we sang a particular song for our spring concert it was all about peace and love the message was not a problem it was the music the music rubbed me the wrong way i did not like hearing this piece i hated it and i told my teacher i don't like this piece and she'll say you'll sing it or you're gonna fail i said i'll sing it but i'm sure as hell not gonna like it and sure enough it was that night when we did the program, when we got on the uh, you know, the stage, and I got up there and I said, Lord, please let me write music that's better than this. I would like to be a composer. So at that point, I just said that because it was just a reaction. But that reaction turned more into, I would say a mission that continues to this very day. So when I got to high school, I still had my literary ambitions. But I wanted to write. I started listening to classical music at an earlier age. And I'll go more about going to that in a minute. But the point is, I wanted to write. So the first thing I did was I took some loose-leaf paper, drew lines, and started trying to write a composition from it. Now, I didn't know how to play an instrument at that time, save for drum. But I tried my best. At least I knew what e, every good boy does find EGBDF and FACE. I knew what those looked like on paper. So I figured I could try to write something based on those viewpoints, not that viewpoint, the EGBDF and the F-A-C-E. So I tried. So I immediately showed it to the boy's dean at uh, Christopher Columbus High School in the Bronx. That's where I went. And he looked at it and said, hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The, the boys' dean was the head of the choral department in the school. He led me to his room, opened the door, gave me a book on notation, said, Learn how to properly read music. When you read music and you do it right, then come back to me and show me what you've written. So I did. I poured over the whole thing, knew what a quarter note, half note, all of that was at this point. And from there, I took out from our local library. Uh, Walter Piston's Counterpoint, Harmony, and Orchestration. Now, I was really over my head in this, but I did the best I could to understand what Piston was trying to say in all of this. And at this point, I wrote my first piece based on this whole experience. I called it the New York Overture Fantasy. Um, And it was a very interesting piece. I tried my best to write what I felt was a a big composition for a large orchestra, and I showed it to him. Says, "Well, it's a it's progress. At least you've got this down. At least you understood what the instruments are about, the transpositions, and all of that. Good. Now keep learning how to write music and study the masters. And that's the first thing I did. Well, the first thing I also did was get a piano. My parent, I talked my parents about buying me a piano." uh after taking guitar and drums and at this point my parents looked at me and said oh another phase okay we got rid of the guitar we got rid of the drums let's see what happens with the piano so they got a cheap piano for like about 400 down on 23rd street in, in manhattan and they brought it home it was delivered and i started taking piano lessons and at that point i told my mother and father I decided my profession. I wanted to be a composer. Now, my father thought I would be a jazz musician because we grew up in the house hearing jazz. I should say I did. I had no brothers or sisters living with me. Um, And I listened to jazz incessantly. And I also started listening to rock music. It was the 60s after all. You were hearing the Beatles and the Stones. You were hearing Motown as well. But you were also hearing great pop standards by Frank Sinatra and the like, you know. And at that point, I said I wanted to be a classical composer. And the first thing my father did was reach for his night table, the door in his night table, went and got a book, and started looking up something. He pulled out a phone book and started looking up psychiatrists. He felt that I had I lost my mind. You're going to be a classical musician. There is no such thing as a Black classical musician. And that drove me insane. And for some time, I said to myself, "Have I gone mad? Did I really? Did I really lose my mind? Did I be? Was I developmentally disabled? You know, and all of that." But no, I wasn't. It wasn't until I pulled out a book by John Tasker Howard, *Our American Music*. But this is a book that is very. After looking at it again recently, uh, and at the advice of a couple of other people who had read the book for years, uh, Howard, for all intents and purposes, did have some racist things to say about African Americans in music in general. And I'll go into that later when we go into, I guess, the racist portion of uh, racism about music, you know, blacks in music. But he had mentioned in the book William Grant Still. And I said, Who's William Grant Still? And he also mentioned in passing Ulysses K. And immediately, at the, that time of this book, these were the two most important African-American composers in American music, apart from the apart from Nathaniel Debt, I should say. And immediately I started looking, you know, I started searching for their music on record. And lo and behold, I found the recording of the Afro American Symphony uh, conducted by Karl Kruger um, and listened to it. And I was blown away by the piece. I tried to find the Dawson Negro Folk Symphony, which Stokowski had recorded. Uh, and I was equally blown away by that piece as well. Then there was, um, as I mentioned, Ulysses K. Kay, and Kay's music was like an aisle. And when I, Channel 13 in New York, WNET, but back then it was um, W, I forgot what the call letters were before it became WNET, they showed a program of the Oakland Youth Orchestra doing a concert called the Black Composer in America. This would be the genesis of, a, this would be, um, this, the, um, I should mention that all of the pieces they did on the television program were later recorded for Desto Records. They made a recording for Desto. And I heard Kay's short overture, and I was blown away. And then Kay was talking, and he said he was teaching at Lehman College in the Bronx. And I said, whoa, I have to study with this man. I must learn from him. And when I got to Lehman College, I finally caught up with Professor Kay, and uh, congratulated him immediately for successes and i look forward to studying with him i surprised the living daylights out of him, man he just looked dumbfounded and said thanks <laughs> so when he finally when i finally got to his class composition class um he wanted to test us all out so he called me first and this is the time and then he got he got back he, he, he sort of in his, in his own way you know it's like I don't want to use the I used the wrong word to describe it when I wrote my program notes for a Ulysses KCD I conducted many years later, but in many ways, you know, they say what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and he caught me by surprise, and I was taken back, and this I all I could do was stammer, <laughs> so in a, in a way, it was a fun way of, of you know of his saying, okay, you surprised me, and I'm going to surprise you, and he did. But nonetheless, I learned a great deal from him uh, about what to do, especially with songs. He said to me, when I showed him a, a song I composed set to a Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem, the first thing he said to me after playing through the piece was, study Hugo Wolf. And immediately, I took his, his advice very you know, markedly, you know, with, with great respect and great fervor. And I studied Hugo Wolf's leader. And indeed, that was a great, great eye-opener, too. Um, but it was at this point, I was, by the time I got to college, leaving college in 1974, I had written two string quartets, several orchestral pieces, uh, tried my hand at a couple of chamber pieces. And it was a very interesting evolution during my high school years, because I was discovering all this different type of music. I was listening to Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. I absorbed the Beethoven late quartets. I listened. I even bought the score of the, uh, all the quartets, which remain to me an inspiration to this day. Uh, I also listened to Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern. And the first time I heard Schoenberg music, I was reviled. I hated it. But I also hated Janacek and Elgar too. I couldn't make heads or tails of either, and both so different. All these composers were so different in their own way. I mean, Elgar with his Victorian pomposity, uh, Janacek with his speech patterns. Both of them threw me for, a loop. and Stravinsky was like, "Ugh, I couldn't handle Stravinsky." Uh, it wasn't until I heard the Rite of Spring that it opened my eyes, and I said, "Wow, what a piece!" And the same with Elgar when I finally got to hear the Dream of Gerontius years later, and Janáček by way of the Sipaneta. So you you know you have to give a composer a chance by listening to several pieces before you find the right one, and you'll say, aha, uh-huh, now I know what this, this guy's up to." Uh And yet at the same time, here I am trying to discover black composers. And fortunately, in 1974, Columbia Records issued their um, Black Composers series. This was a it was going to be originally a 20-volume series over the course of five years, four volumes per year. Uh, They only did nine volumes, unfortunately. And to hear not just Ulysses K, but George Walker, Jorge Cordero, um, Jose White. David Baker, Adolphus Hale Stork, Hale Smith, you know, all and, and of course Samuel Coleridge Taylor and still in the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, all of these composers were an eye-opener to me. And I tried to tell my father all of this. And it was like, you know, how could you, you know, he was he was he was dumbfounded too, because he never realized there were the, the many composers. He, the only composer he knew that was a serious composer was Duke Ellington. That was the, and he couldn't handle Duke Ellington, even though he was jazz. To him, Duke Ellington was highbrow music. It was, it was too above his head. And forget guys like the Ardentz Shamble of Chicago or Anthony Braxton. Or, you know, or even there were times John Coltrane, who he loved. There were times when Coltrane went experimental with Eric Dolphy. He couldn't handle the experimental side of Train or Dolphy let alone Art Ensemble Chicago and Roscoe Mitchell and Richard Abrams and Braxton. He couldn't handle any of that. That was to him was not music. But that was a music surprise, surprise. It was funny how I didn't like Schoenberg, but I was able to grasp them. That's when I also went back and listened to Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern. I was fascinated by Webern, didn't know what to make of Berg, and Schoenberg just reviled it. Now today's the opposite. Today, if you ask me about Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern, I'll tell you, Webern, very good. Schoenberg, I finally got a grasp on what he was all about, and Berg is one of my all-time favorites. So it's amazing how one can grow in listening to all of this music and find certain paths in music. I also found my way by listening, of course, my favorites were you know, apart from many of the black composers I mentioned: Gershwin, Mahler, Carl Nielsen, Anton Bruckner. Richard Strauss. I mean, these, and of course, Bernard Herrmann, who I think is one of the greatest American composers that ever lived. And still, in my opinion, one of the most neglected composers that ever lived to this day. I know everybody talks saying, okay, how can you say Herrmann is neglected? We hear North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo. Yes, you do. You hear those three great hip hop scores. But you don't play his symphony. You don't play his Moby Dick. You don't play his uh, opera at Wutherland Heights. that's where the neglect comes in. It's As serious aside, uh nobody, uh, nobody plays enough of. And the fact that Herman was a conductor in the 1940s over the CBS radio network, where he introduced not only a number of American composers, he was the first one, or rather right, I should say, he was one of the first to introduce Charles Ives to the general public. He was also uh, a big Anglophile and introduced a lot of British composers to American audiences in the 1940s, many of whom they never heard of. And Herman remains to this day, I think, a catalyst uh, in the Romantic revival that we saw in the 70s. Uh, he recorded Raff's Lenore Symphony in 1970 when no one else was doing Joachim Raff, And it's amazing how this man really took on the establishment of music. And for the record, too, Herman also conducted a number of Black composers during his days at CBS. He conducted Coleridge-Taylor, he conducted Still, he conducted Debt. Uh, I'd asked Ulysses Kaye, whom he was friends with, if he had ever conducted Kaye. Unfortunately, he did not. By the time he was getting, by the time Kaye was really getting around uh, with other conductors like Stokowski and Metropolis, Herman was no longer conducting at CBS. The, uh, the network had disbanded the radio orchestra, and that's why Herman wound up being in Hollywood in the 50s um, and became what we call one of the, the, one of the great innovators of film scoring. But that's, all of these composers, all of these men, in many ways proved to be an influence on my own music, music. Um, I started off writing scores that were like Bach and Vaughan Williams, a little bit of both combination. But when I got to Lehman, I showed my music to John Corleano. Oh, and this is at a time when John Corleano was not the John Corleano of today, the John Corleano of the violin, the John Corleano who won the Grammy Award, the John Corleano who's won so many awards and, you know, has been commissioned by the Met, and he's a household name. Well, just about a household name. At that time, if you mentioned John Corleano in the 70s, he was his father who was the former concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic. Today, it's John Corleano, Jr., the composer of many great scores. But back in the 1970s, he was not well known. So the funny thing is that, um, that, uh, what's his, that 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 Corleano looked at my scores and said, young man, you have to get into the 20th century. The problem is that Corleano's idea of the 20th century and other composers' ideas of the 20th century were two different things. Cor- Corleano was wedded to the music of Barbara and Leonard Bernstein. And when he wanted to get adventurous, the Polish school of Penderecki and Luduslawski. But when I showed him a piece I wrote during my college years, uh, a chamber concerto, he looked at it. was fascinated by the complexity. And he said, but this music is, and these percussion parts are so complex. Where did you learn how to write this music like this in a year? And I said, oh, I was studying Elliott Carter's double concerto for piano, harpsichord, and two chamber orchestras. (gasps) You young composers and Elliott Carter. Yeah. He had, he had no love for Elliot Carter or Roger Sessions, or and surprise, surprise, he had no love for Bernard Herman either. Uh, he sort of lumped them all in the same boat. Um, it was like, it was a different view of 20th century music to him. He couldn't handle Carter's use of, of pitch relation and all of this. He couldn't handle Sessions with his 12 tone. He couldn't handle that. And um, it was interesting that I had gone a little beyond his uh, perspective of what Music t- Symphony Music was about. I'm sure he probably wouldn't have had any like, like for George Crumb either, uh, who's Ancient Voices of Children and Black Angels. Um, eventually I got to catch up with Black Angels, which is a masterpiece of literature. And Ancient Voices of Children at first, I wound up taking three etc., <laughs> because I wanted with a headache listening to it the first time. But in years to come, I studied the score and heard it, and they said, wow, what a piece of music. Um, so to me, contemporary music has a lot to offer. Um, there are so many different avenues, but the problem also is the audiences only see one avenue today. They don't see the other avenue, and I wish they would. There's many tonal and romantic composers out there, just as much as there are many atonal and modernist and um, aleatoric composers out there. And you know what the problem is: one side always tends to dominate over the other, and that should not happen. It's still happening today, even though the pendulum has swung to the tonal side. Um, and ato- atonality and modernism still rule the roost when it comes to administrators and orchestra mm-hmm. and academia to a certain degree, but not as much as it did in the 70s when I grew up. Because in the 70s, uh, you either had to write in a very modernist, acerbic style, or you were damned as a heretic. That, that's what it came to. You're not damned as a heretic today, but You're still, but any composer, even a composer who writes an eight measure melody that's diatonic is still viewed with suspect by today's audiences. Sad.
0: Yeah, well, you know what's really funny is that your background into music was very similar to mine. And for me, my parents were both singers. They both sang in Handel and Haydn. So my earliest memory was my father and my mother you know, warming up for a concert, and they would go sing at Symphony Hall, and how I got into it was like, oh, I want to do exactly what they're doing, and it it was really, like, not until I was about 17 or 18, where I was playing piano, and my piano teacher was very strict at the time, and I remember playing Mozart, I would always improvise and stuff like that, and one day he asked me like so what do you want to do when you go to college and I'm like well I want to do piano performance and he choked on his coffee and he's like don't do it he's like why don't you do composition and so like you I started going to the library reading scores I read the Walter Piston and the harmony counterpoint and the harmony book which I'm still trying to figure out today but I figured it out enough where I can learn and start to write pieces but like you, like, my idea of modern 20th century composers as I was going up was Paul Hindemith and Dmitry Shostakovich, and it wasn't until I actually got into Berkeley College of Music and where I studied with Julius Williams, and I was introduced to not only William Grant Still and um, Ulysses K and et cetera, et cetera, but Berkeley had, like, an incredible faculty of black composers julius williams isaiah jackson jonathan holland william banfield and i please i know there's more and please forgive me if i left you out of this podcast um but i got to study with each one and really really learn and they really helped me get me in the right direction as a composer. But it's it's amazing, like how you s- pretty much stumble on to learning about black composers kind of by accident. There's really no access to really sit down and really learn about the history of black composers. There is, there is, there is
1: none, and yet at the same time there is. I mean, once you find the books, the like Eileen Southern's book or. Uh, 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 William Floyd's book, I think William, like the guy's first name already, Floyd. Uh, and there's a couple, in Raul Abdul's uh, long out of print book, Blacks in Classical Music. Uh, you, they are there. The, the thing is, again, you have to you have to go out of your way to find these books. There's, William, there's Bill Banfield's book, Landscapes in Color, which I was a part of. Uh, he interviewed me and many other composers. I don't know if you ever saw the book. Um, It's a great book, it's out of print now, unfortunately. And I think Bill's trying to resurrect it through another publisher. Uh, And you mentioned Julius, whom I've long been friends with. Julius and I went to Lehman College at the same time, back in the 70s, and we both studied with Kay back then, too, uh, together. And, you know, Jonathan and I met in Detroit in 1994. I met met Bill in 92 when I was there and had my piece Read and eventually won the Unisys African American Composers Forum Award. Great guys, all, all three of them. And Isaiah Jackson, unfortunately, I don't know, but Isaiah is a great conductor in his own right. Um, interesting enough, Isaiah made a recording of um, Bernard Herrmann's Sinfonietta. He did the first recording of it, as well as music of Miklos Rocha and uh, Franz Waxman uh, for Koch. Great, great album. It's out of print, but it is one hell of a disc, it's another eye opener. And Jackson really got into the, uh, these pieces quite well. Um, yeah, being at Berkeley, you, you got the right people. You met, you met the right right people right off the bat and they introduced you to the right composers.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing, like when I, I, like I did not go to Berkeley with the intention of studying with all these black composers. I didn't know until I actually got there. And I remember, like, I, I vividly remember how I met Julius was we were, um, like, it was the first, I think it was the first day of my second year at Berkeley. And usually the first day you would, all the composition students would come together, we would introduce ourselves and say who our favorite composer is and who, what our favorite color is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Julius was there, and I was like saying, like, "Wow, another black composer is here." I guess, and and I stood up, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, my name is Greg," and I'm like, "The first, and you know, my my second year at Berkeley, you know, and I want to learn composition and blah blah blah." And then afterwards, I introduced myself to Julius, and we, you know, took it off from there, and I studied with him. Composition with him, I worked with him, you know, as a, as an assistant conductor. So, but it, it was it was it was again, it was really by accident how I was introduced to all of these composers, and that's how I stumbled upon learning about the history of black composers, and this is where I want to get to in part two, race in classical music. I think the problem with You know, being a Black composer and trying to move forward as a Black composer is that a lot of people don't have these resources and a lot of people don't know, which could be the reason why a lot of music by African Americans is not getting programs.
1: It's a combination of factors, many factors. One of them, I'll start right off the bat with, is administrators. Many administrators come in from an academic background. They either were performers in their own right and eventually felt that the performance venue was not the right goal for them, and they decided to try the administrative end. Many of them also could be music lovers, not necessarily musicians, and still come in as an administrator because their background could be administrative in any which way, shape, or form, but still the love of music is there. The major problem has been, and this has been the major problem, is that classical music has been dominated by, and this is no offense to to, to these composers, but it has been dominated by what we call European music. European music, like European history, like many factors, have dominated the world since I would say it's been the world. I mean, when we think, you know, I had this argument, just to dovetail a little bit, one morning on the street corner with a Jehovah's Witness, uh, who tried to get me involved in their religion. And we, I spoke to them about how they came up with this whole thing about the devil being thrown out of heaven, the war in heaven, and they would be thrown out on, I think it was June 27th or June 29 1914. Uh, this date is very important. That's the date that the Archduke Francis Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo, thus triggering all the events that led to World War One. And he, he said that. He said, Yeah, uh, he, he, uh, he said, yeah, The world went to war. I said, Remember, the world is, you're right, for the first time, the world as we know today went to war. The world in 1914, as we knew then, of an entire world of different nations went to war, further exacerbated by the second. But before that, Europe was the world. Europe had everything, culture, philosophy, science, medicine, art, everything. Europe was considered the dominating factor in the world for centuries, from the beginning of even back to the, goes back to the Roman Empire. So you cannot say that Satan was kicked out of heaven in 1914. He was kicked out long before then. But the point I'm making is that Europe itself dominated all cultures. It dominated British culture, which I don't consider part of Europe. It dominated, certainly, it had its hand set on, on composers in Asia. It's certainly, to some lesser degree, with Africa. Unless you were involved with the colonials, um, most Africans were untouched by European culture in many ways, and in some ways today still aren't. And America itself, being a young nation, of course, we coming off the, the loins of Great Britain, we inherited a British aesthetic, but also when it came to music, we also looked at it from a European viewpoint. I mean, when you think of Thomas Jefferson, the music you find in his library is that of Europeans. And maybe if you find a few British composers, like, say, Thomas Arne and uh and, and Handel, of course, when I consider British at this point. Um, yes, it made a lot of sense. But over the years, our music became, if you listen to the music of George Frederick Bristow, um, Edward McDowell, George Templeton Strong Jr., uh, and, of course, the New England School of George Whitefield Chadwick, Amy Beach, Horatio Parker, and, and uh, Arthur Foote, all of this music stems from a German aesthetic, because in order to be taken seriously in America in the 19th century, you had to go to Germany. There were some exceptions to rule, obviously, odds being one, he studied in America, and so did Amy Beach. Um, to a lesser extent, she sort of was more of a self-taught composer. But you had, but basically, by and large, the German aesthetic was there. And to this day, we still have that European aesthetic, not just in terms of composition uh, uh, thinking about composition, but also in conductors. Very rare, right now, we're looking at conductors of various orchestras. How many of them over the years were American, uh, music directors of American orchestras have, were American? Bernstein was perhaps the first who inherited a major American orchestra although before him. There was Thor Johnson with Cincinnati and Carl Kruger with the Seattle and the Kansas City symphonies um, before that. And they were American-born conductors. But they, but um, in the case of Kruger, he studied in Germany. Johnson studied along with Bernstein and Lucas Foss at Tanglewood. So in that sense, that first generation was very interesting. Herman was studied at Juilliard. Uh, so did Dean Dixon in the 1930s. Well, Dixon had the go to Europe to get his credentials because he was black. This comes now comes to the racism in music uh, and also the factor. Um, Arthur Judson, the general manager of both the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic in the 1940s, um, he may have welcomed Dixon grudgingly because Dixon was a major force in the 1940s. But when it came to Everett Lee, he said to Everett Lee, no one's gonna hire a black conductor as a music director. And I'm sure he probably told Dixon the same thing, which is why Dixon and Lee wound up going to Europe and being seen not for the color of their skin, but for their talents as conductors. And in in turn became music directors of major orchestras in Europe in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, the, the, The problem with America is we didn't allow any Americans, black or white, until, as I said, Johnson was the first. Uh, Kruger was German. Because of his name, they figured he was German, but he was actually a man born. Um, Herman, of course, was, was interesting, and so was Howard Barlow, his predecessor, but they were radio. And even though we think of radio works today, we think of Toscanini and the NBC Symphony, we don't think of the CBS Symphony, which was very innovative. It was Barlow who commissioned still to write Lennox Avenue. Um, Herman endorsed stills music over the airwaves. It was amazing what radio was like in the 1940s. It was a very adventurous time. And even Dixon wound up conducting both the NBC and the CBS symphony orchestras as a guest conductor back then. Um, but the problem is by the time we come to the 1960s, we forget about Dixon because Dixon is no, is out of sight, out of mind in America. Uh, and the same with Everett Lee, out of sight, out of mind. Still and Kay are being performed, thank goodness, by major conductors and orchestras and getting commissions. But the problem is now we're looking at a new generation of Black audiences who are now staying away from classical music. They were, If you were in the church, you were reared into classical music because it was a part of the church, just like it was in Europe. Again, it's European aesthetic goes into our black, into the black community with the church. Also, the problem is that we run into a new aesthetic of anti-establishment in music in general. Jazz is no longer the orderly style that you hear in Louis Armstrong, you know, um, or even Art Tatum's while even Art Tatum's wildness is supplanted by Thelonious Monk. You hear all of a sudden Parker breaking new ground uh, in jazz, along with Miles Davis and John Coltrane, and especially in popular music, seeing Johnny Mathis come out of Nat King Cole, all of these, Dinah Washington, Nina Simone, Nina Simone, a black pianist, named Eunice, I think Whalen or Wayman, who wanted to be a classical pianist, couldn't make it into Curtis. Somehow, Natalie Henderris made it at the same time, but Eunice Way- Wayman did not, and she became Nina Simone and one of the greatest jazz pianists and singers of her day. And yet, she still brought her love of Bach into jazz quite, quite radically. In some ways, she, when she did improv, she did her improvs on Bach, and it's again, what, what where do we go? We we have this in our system, but yet. Black audiences can't fathom it. We, don't, we do hear, I mean, there's one song that the Supremes did which was based on the Anna Magdalena Bach notebook. Yes, How Gentle is the Rain. I think it's the title. And um, there's other things that we find, but yet Black audiences of my age couldn't relate to classical music. We were finding our own identity in music some did go the route of finding it in African music but very little some decided to build on the foundations of jazz and gospel and r and b and take it one step further and they did Motown is definitely one and other factors too. Quincy Jones of course is again another revolutionary um, having written he studied with boulanger and he offered, but boulanger encouraged him to write more jazz than classical because she felt he would be more comfortable in that realm, not because he was black, because that was his language as a musician. And even though Quincy Jones could write a damn good orchestral score like he did for Sidney Lumet's uh, 1964 film *The Pawnbroker*, um, Quincy could also cut the best of the rug in jazz, Motown, R&B, everything. He was an all-around guy, and still is. But the problem is administrators don't see the multifaceted element of blacks and their contribution to music. What they see is, okay, we do see it, but it's not classical. We can't relate to it. Where's the order? Where's the structure? Where's the logic? And so they felt at the time, this music should not be in the concert hall. And any composers that do make it in the concert hall, well, I don't know. Yeah, we allowed Still and we allowed Kay in, but we can't allow everybody. Now, there is a pick and choose situation, even to this very day. Right now, they will pick and choose even black composers. I mean, Jesse Montgomery, who is a awesome talent and has now been appointed a composer in residence of the Chicago Symphony. And she didn't just get it because she was black or a woman, she earned it, as far as I'm concerned. Her music has been spoken for by many orchestras and chamber ensembles, Um, you know, and and now we're living in a different era. We're now living in 2021, where this music can be accepted. But yet at the same time, for every Jesse Montgomery that does get accepted, in my opinion, there are 10 other composers out there who say what she's saying better, than what she's saying, and they are getting neglected. They're getting neglected. They're getting uh, pushed aside. Saying, "You see, we already, we already, we already uh, appointed your your uh, your head, your new your new uh, queen or king of black classical music. Go away and shut up." But that's not going to happen because black composers will not go gentle into the good night, be they alive or dead. It's impossible, and the, many of us have to continue to fight. Or a piece of the pie. Administrators are a very tricky bunch. Number one, but then so are the so-called gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are those who are established in academia, or they uh, composers who knew other composers who put them into that realm, and they don't like competition. But nobody, you know, America is a very competitive nation, but sometimes, sometimes we don't like competition. Sometimes we abhor We want to be top dog, king of the hill made it my top of the world, as James Cagney said at the end of White Heat. Um all of these things uh are what's keeping American music both alive and dead.
0: i would just like to interject something and you're you you're really right on like especially with the 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 administrators what you're talking about. I couldn't agree more. And to to the people who are listening to this as far as American composers go, it's not just Black composers. Black composers get the worst of it. But, and I think with the administrators, I think they're so warped in their belief as to what people should be listening to. Like, how often do you hear Walter Piston's symphonies?
1: You don't. You don't hear Walter Piston. You don't hear Peter Menon. You don't hear Ellie Sigmeister, You don't even hear Erwin Basil. These are four premier symphonists I just named, four. And you don't hear Persichetti's symphonies unless it's the sixth and it, it, it's a very adventurous concert band performing it. And that's the only one he wrote of the, of the symphonies in his genre band. Uh, you don't hear Arnold Rosner who is an awesome, awesome composer, uh, t- a talent that very few people know of. Um, Who's completely different. I mean, this is a composer who went to college and he said in the end, he learned absolutely nothing. He brought with him his love of Shostakovich and Havanas and Nielsen. And wrote symphonies that are downright uh, undescribable and very interesting, uh, and completely different from any of the American symphonists we know of. James Barnes, who has and David Maslanka have both written large-scale symphonies for concert band. And the only reason they're done in the concert band venue is because they they see they want to be adventurous. And I'm talking about military bands, collegiate bands, community bands wouldn't know what to do with the Barnes Third Symphony or the Maslanka Fourth. They're very powerful pieces and they're very challenging, both for the audience and for the uh, player alike. Um, the problem has been with American composers in general, here we also have another choose, a pick and choose situation. Conductors, I'll go right into the conductor's part. I haven't, I haven't conducted orchestras myself, chorus, band, and orchestra for close to 40 years. I can tell you now that when I speak to conductors, usually they stick to the so-called eight, as I say, so-called eight American composers they're, they're enchanted by, are uh, Gershwin, Copeland, Ives, Barber, Leonard Bernstein, and what I call the three Johns, namely John Adams, or as so I say, John Coolidge Adams, as opposed to John Luther Adams, uh, who won for Become Ocean, as John Coolidge, of course, is known best for Harmonia Lara, and the Chairman Dances, and Klinghoffer, and Dr. Atomic, and so forth. But of the three Johns, you have John Coolidge Adams, you have John Corleano, and you have John Williams. Those three, those eight composers is what is considered American music today. Those are the eight composers that are done the most often. Although in the hindsight, Barber is done, not as done as often as he should. And Ives, who was once done quite a bit in the 60s and 70s and even the 80s, uh, has now sort of fallen a little bit by the wayside, even though you we know, just recorded all the odds for some um, But overall, the um, overall American composers, and there are so, so many American composers out there. It's hard to even know where to begin. Let, as you said, black composers get the worst of it. And black women composers, I are mean, getting even worse than the worst of it. I
0: mean, I was actually gonna gonna going to mention that you know because I studied composition with Tonya Leone and like one of the most brilliant minds I've ever. It was a big part of me changing my composition to help forming my own voice, and a pioneering composer like her, a lot of people don't really know about, which which I consider a sin, almost.
1: It's be honest. It's to be honest, sin. It's a cardinal sin. Uh, Tanya is indeed an awesome voice in American music. Uh, she has been a, for, 50, for over 50 years. I mean, I first met her when she was conducting the Brooklyn Philharmonic Orchestra, and she was doing a concert of Black and Latinx composers back then. One of the composers she did became a big mentor of mine, Ed Bland, and Ed was tremendous. I love the sketches, which she did. I think the sketch is set too. Uh, and I love the way he wrote for the timpani and everything. I, I've never forgot that. So years later, when a friend of mine introduced me to Ed, I said, Yes, I remember you. And, I, I, and Ed really counseled me on many of my scores and many of my style, so, you know, sounds and you know, told you know, he he really wanted me to find my own voice and, and veer away from certain influences and find a certain style that I could call my own, which is something he did over the years. And it's true. I mean, Ed between Ed... Noel de Costa, Hale Smith, and Ulysses Kay; those four alone were my mentors in composition, and I don't think you could ask for any stronger mentors than those four. I mean, really. But Tanya herself was also, in many ways, a force with my music. She introduced my uh, "Hunting of the Snark" at the Brooklyn Philharmonic uh, family concerts back in '87. You know, was it '88? '88, and she, she and I are still friends, and she's one terrific. Powerful composer. I just, you know, her pieces are terrific to listen to. Um, she, that she's written so much. That she's finally getting, I think, her due with other orchestras has been quite, quite good, and I'm glad to say, uh, quite invigorating. But before, that, but Tanya was at a time in the '70s when other um, women composers were beginning to emerge. Ellen thompson Village was there. Uh, Ursula Mamlock. Was emerging. Um, who else was out there at the time? Gusty Thomas wasn't wasn't coming on the on the horizon yet. She was still a kid. Um, and, and there were uh, there was there's others out there. Oh, there Musgrave. There Musgrave was has always been out there. There Musgrave, a, a marvelous composer from Scotland, who managed to settle in America, lived in America, remained of for life. She's still alive. Uh, and, and, and certain other women composers. Are out there, Barbara Cole, uh, Betsy Jolas, who was born in France of American parentage, she's French American. Um, so many other composers out there, but yet Tanya and others, Julia Perry, Margaret Bonds, uh, at that time, Bonds should have been should have been better known, but she died in the '70s. Um, uh, Margaret Harris, also an excellent conductor and composer in her own right. Uh, neglected to this day. Um, Julia Perry should not be neglected at all. I've looked at many of the uh, pieces she's written and this is a tremendous force. And I hope that her music can be resurrected, uh, not just the three or four pieces we're hearing now, but many more pieces. She has uh, the, the cask of Amontillado, the one act opera, based on Edgar Allan Poe's tale, which is fantastic. And another one based on Oscar Wilde's The Sleeping Giant, a wonderful piece. Different, very different, very avant-garde opera uh, that could stand a great production. Um, Many of these women composers, Black women composers, were neglected. Now we're seeing, thank goodness, a series of them coming to the fore, Erica Lindsay, Courtney Bryan, Shelley Washington, uh, three names that I think deserve to be mentioned more. there's another one, Autumn Maria Reed, young composer out there. She deserves to get her music done. There, there's so many out there and yet black women composers should not be neglected. That we finally found Florence Price's music after all these years has been a revelation and a terrific boon for her music. And I'm glad that has happened. Uh, there are other women composers I'm sure that are out there that we don't know of that deserve more recognition. And um, I mean, Lady Beck and Alston, to give you the example too, that I knew personally, Lady Beck and Alston was also a tremendous force in classical music. She died too young a few years ago uh, while she was on vacation. And a wonderful, wonderful woman. Regina Harris-Biocki out of Chicago. Again, she writes terrific music and she's an all-around renaissance woman. She's not just a composer, she's a poet, she's a writer, she's uh everything. And yet she should she should get out of that, I think, the Chicago milieu and be better known. Come to think of another composer out there, um who's from Chicago, whose music I've yet to hear is Harold Cowherd. And, you know, I've spoken to Harold many times, wonderful fellow. I just wish I could hear his music one of these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like, like, this is something I wanted to get your opinion on. And um, I talked at length with a lot of my colleagues about this. And it's a topic of Black History Month. And that is usually the one month where, black composers can get their music performed and then after that they're kind of told to go sit out and shut up for the rest of the year
1: actually it's two months let's put two months into that it's at black it's it's martin luther king's birthday right history month so you got january and february to deal with and now if you want to stretch it into june with black music month terrific but nobody does mean black but black music month Okay, you're gonna, you're, gonna get, you're gonna get a sore spot in me in that, about that in a minute, but more on that in a second. Uh, you're right. They haul out African American composers for Black History Month and Martin Luther King's birthday, and then they tell us to go away. They tell that the same thing to conductors. They told that to Thomas Wilkins, and Thomas Wilkins, I think, to his agents, he was on a webinar, and he said, Listen, why don't you just give me a regular subscription concert instead of a Black History Month concert? And it's true you have to start standing up saying, okay, it's all what well, you're doing with Black history. Remember, I appreciate it, no problems, no ifs ands saying buts about that. But my music should be the same way that Hale Smith described it. it. It should stand up alongside the Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Bruckner and Mahler and Stravinsky and, and Bartok. It should stand up alongside those composers. And only after that music is heard and the audience receives it well you stand up and take your bow, and that's when the audience sees who you are. And that's something that we need to address more of. Why aren't black composers not getting? Never mind, just the performances. They're also not on the list of commissionees a lot.
0: Exactly.
1: I mean, Hilary Hahn I'll give you an example. Commissioned something like about fifty or sixty composers to write short violin pieces for her. Not one of them was a Black composer, or for that matter, I think a Latinx composer also. I don't think, I will, it was. I it don't believe she had an Asian, if she did have an Asian composer, I don't know if it was Chen Yi or Zhaolong or Tan Dun, but she. I, I don't recall her having any of them on her list. And that's kind of wrong. The inclusiveness, the diversity the, is something that the, the right wing is now trying to promote as being a cancer on America, and I'll go into that soon enough. Um, Diversity has always and should have been welcome. It's what we as Americans fought for, for years. The problem is again, the founding fathers may have written the right words, but their hearts weren't in the right place at the time. Uh, Some of them were slave owners, Jefferson, definitely. Uh, Some of them still felt that African-Americans at that time did not have the capacity to be intellectual. Um, indeed, when slave owner when when they, when blacks were finally, when the slave owners finally found out blacks were reading, able to read, they gave them the Bible. But the Bible they gave them was an adulterated one, filled with fear and hate, in them because they 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 did it in the way to coddle them and, and put them, in, in, you know, uh, basically subjugate them to their will because they only showed the parts that were about subjugation and not about freedom in the Bible. And that's something that was wrong. And the thing is, we as a free nation should express all of that in our music. And the, 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 you're coming to Black History Month, which indeed has turned, is now being, they're trying to turn that into a cancer also. well. Uh, I hear about this Black History Month. That's racist. Why don't we have a White History Month? Why don't we have an Italian American History Month? Well, you have, you know, and, and so forth and so on. You know, I had one person on Facebook criticize me for saying Kwanzaa was a holiday when it was founded by a, a Black murderer and felon. But I said, but out of that came good, you know, because what was meant to be, a, it's meant to be a celebration of heritage. Uh, even though it may be some people's eyes made up, it's still a celebration of heritage. African-Americans have never received their proper due in the movies. They've never received their proper due on television.
0: And we still don't.
1: And they still don't. I mean, I'll make a long story short. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I told her, I still have problems with the 1959 movie Imitation of Life. I have problems with the 34 original as well. I still have problems with both movies. I've seen both of them, and I have problems with I don't know if you know the film. I don't know if you know the story of the film. Um,
0: I, I know of it. I actually never seen the movie, but I know I know of the movie,
1: though. Yeah, as I said, two of them. The first one was with Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers, 1934. The second one was with Lallana turned Juanita Moore, the 59. That's the better-known version. Um, and they both have the same impact. It's a crazy film um the mother's daughter uh, the black mother's daughter is very light-skinned and wants to be white and passes for white and causing great heartbreak to the mother to the point where she dies um i mean it's it's a fascinating storyline and all but there are times when the, the black woman is still subservient to the white woman who's her friend they're, they're supposed to be best friends confidence, but they don't act like she doesn't treat her like when she keeps calling her Miss Annie or Miss so-and-so instead of just addressing her first frigging name. And as I said, the way the film is constructed, both of them, the 34 and the 59, I just have problems with. And the funny thing is about racism in music too, is that when you do try to introduce yourself as a composer, a serious composer to an organization, be they a community orchestra or band or the like, don't want to know about you for that. A case in point I will make happened in 1999. My wife and I moved up to the Hudson Valley from the Bronx to settle down. And I found, I was doing my investigation of orchestras and choruses in the area. And one of the orchestras uh, in one of the bigger cities in Orange County uh, was holding a concert in the summertime. So I went to the concert. I spoke with the president of the orchestra. He seemed very open about Uh, me working with the orchestra. He said, but talk to the music director and talk to our general manager. So I talked to the music director and he said, talk to the general manager. And the minute I went to the general manager, I said, um, I introduced myself. I said, okay, uh, so what do you do? I said, I'm a composer. We don't do soul or jazz music here. That was the first thing that came out of her mouth. We don't do soul or jazz music. I said, I'm sorry, but I don't write soul or jazz. I write concert music. You do? Uh, you, you, you really do? Yes, I do. I'd be happy to show you my scores. She said, yeah, well, fine, send them. I did. She sent them back to me about a month, month, and a half later saying, thank you, but your music is too hard for us. And I sent it to another orchestra and they say it's too hard for them. Neither of which was true. I saw both orchestras perform pieces that were extremely harder than mine. And they were by white composers. So don't give me this BS about this. This is crap. And it goes to prove that they're, but they, they say this basically, most administrators say this about any composers, that they're not familiar with. It's too hard for our organization, especially if you're a community or semi-pro organization. But it's also because you're an outsider. I went to another conductor of another orchestra. He uh, glad-harried me. He, not glad Harry. that's the wrong word. He patronized me. He was very open, he was very, he smiled, he said this and this, but between all the words he was saying, he said, yes, I see you're a composer, yes, I see you've won awards, yes, I see you've been performed by major conductors, but as far as I'm concerned, you're a local guy, and I don't do local composers. Again, another thing, this has nothing to do with race, it has to do with where you live. There's conductors out there who don't want to do a local composer, because they don't think you're any damn good. They think that all you are is an amateur in their eyes. They want to do a name. They want to see you win the Pulitzer Prize. They want to see you win the Gronemeyer Award. They want to see you have your name in lights in Carnegie Hall. And most important, they want to see you having a bunch of commercial recordings. It's ridiculous. It's totally, it it, it, it stymies the imagination, how conductors and administrators think. Uh, I've never thought that way. If you're a local composer, the first thing I did when I took over the SUNY Orange band program at Orange County Community College in Middletown, the first thing I said is, bring me the local composers. I want to know who you are, because I want to know what local voices have to say musically. Some of them weren't good, I agree, and some of them were tremendous talents, and I did those composers. It's amazing how composers want to get their music done, and they run into so many roadblocks and obstacles. If it isn't race, it's where you live. If it's not where you live, it's because you don't seem the right person for them. It's not who you. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And if they don't want to know you, they don't want to know you. They don't want to know you personally, your music, all of this. They don't want to know you. As far as i are concerned, you're an athlete. You got to go away, little man. You bother me.
0: And that concludes part one of my interview with composer Kevin Scott. Next week, part two will be released, and that will be episode six. Remember, if you want earlier access to my podcast, you can sign up as a member at www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment. You can have earlier access to listen to podcast recordings as well as listen to recordings of my compositions because so many people have been, you know, eager to hear my compositions. So that's the way to listen to it. So I hope you all become members. So until next week, I will see you then. And that concludes this week's podcast. Remember, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please leave a like or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each like or review will help people find the Houston Experiment Podcast, which will greatly be appreciated.